You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Normandale Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We're glad you're listening today to one of our sermons. Our hope is that it encourages you as you seek to know Jesus better. If you are helped by this sermon, we want to invite you to support the ongoing ministry of Normandale. You can do that by going to normandale.org give. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We're going to continue uh, the series that we began... Uh, at the beginning of December, and, and then we had a couple weeks off uh, from the book of Daniel, so I'll get you caught up on where we're at. Uh, but Daniel chapter 3, and if you're unfamiliar with this, just turn to the table of contents, and that'll help you find the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and uh, you can find your way there. Uh, but uh, context for this is we saw Daniel and all of his uh, friends and all of the people in his nation, really, were deported from Israel into Babylon because they were unfaithful to God. And so God brought judgment upon them. He, brought, he raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to come in to raise their city in Jerusalem and to carry them back into captivity in Babylon. And so we saw a couple chapters in this. We're going to recap in just a moment. But the first one was uh, Daniel was put into a special leadership program where he was going to become a wise man in Babylon, and, and Nebuchadnezzar gave them provision, food. But, now, but Daniel said, no, in this gray world, I think that loving God best means that I'm going to follow a certain diet. And, and what God proved is that his provision was better. The second thing was Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams over this statue that had four different sections on it, and he was really unsure about what was going on with it. And Daniel was the one that God raised up to be able to interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And so now we come to chapter 3 here. So the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, in many respects, especially in this first half or so, is, is, is a story of Nebuchadnezzar, really. Um, you, see, you see hints of Daniel and hints of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but, but also you see Nebuchadnezzar arising from the text over these first four, ch- four chapters or so. And you see this arc in his life uh, in, in kind of coming to experience God in different ways. And, uh, and so what, what God is doing in this first part of this book is he's trying to display his faithfulness to his people. He's trying to teach his people that you have reason to continue to trust me even in this circumstance that seems not that great. You've been deported into this other country. You've got godless leaders leading you, and, uh, and it's not what you thought life was going to be like when you were growing up. And God is trying to say through the, book of this, for the, for, for, through the first half of this book, you have reason to trust me still simultaneously, you see this story of God pursuing the heart of a sinner to lead him to salvation. It's really a pretty cool thing. Now, again, why do they have reason to to need to know how to trust God? Again, remember where they're at. They've been deported. Their city's been raised. They've been brought into this new country with this pagan leader, and, uh, and they're under his authority now. And so they're in this situation to where it's like not that great, but they've got to remember, God is the one who brought this. God is the one who brought this about. If you recall, if we talked about it earlier, the point of this 
is God was trying to capture Israel's attention, saying, you have been running from me, you have been turning from me, you've been walking in rebellious ways away from me, and so I'm going to bring things into your life and into your country's life that are going to cause you to realize that you need salvation from me. It's a call to repentance. That's what the point of this is. And so the question is, is will they return to God? Will they return to Him? Will there be a remnant who hold to faith in Yahweh even in the middle of facing judgment? And so, in this circumstance, God grants believers reason to continue to trust in Him by proving that He is a God, by proving that He is a God even over these foreign powers that they're under. That's what he's doing. He's trying to say, you guys can trust me by proving that he is supreme over these foreign powers. But simultaneously, in the plan of God, he does this in such a way to bring salvation to those foreign powers. It's, it's really, really cool. So, let's get into the context. So, what's happening here in this book is actually God's judgment against pride, it's God's judgment against pride and the pride of Babylon. And so he's confronting these spiritual barriers uh, that, are, that are in the way from belief for the Babylonians, but also for God's people uh, because they're under his authority. And so here's, I'll show you how it works. You see this thread in the first four chapters in which each chapter is dominated by this theme of resisting the will of King Nebuchadnezzar, resisting his will. And so, in chapter 1, you saw Nebuchadnezzar provided provisions for Daniel. And what did Daniel do? He said, I'm going to follow something else. I'm going to eat something other than what the king gave me. And what was proved in that chapter is that God's provision is better than Nebuchadnezzar's. Chapter 2, what we saw, I guess, a couple weeks ago, is Nebuchadnezzar had this dream where he had this statue and had four sections of it, and the top head was golden, and that represented Nebuchadnezzar. But then there's this great stone that came and crushed that statue, and it withered away, and it was this other kingdom that was going to come and be established forever. And the point was, Nebuchadnezzar, you're building your kingdom, but your kingdom's not eternal, God says. And so there's this ratcheting up each, each time of God trying to capture Nebuchadnezzar's attention to prove to him that he's not in control of the world, God is. Thus, by proving to God's people that their God's in control of the situation. And so we come to chapter 3 here, and the question is this, who controls worship? Who controls who people worship? Like, which of these two God-like people are, are in control? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it Yahweh, Israel's God? That's the question coming into this text. And so, that's the setting for Nebuchadnezzar to finally experience God for the first time in his life. To finally experience God for the first time in his life. And so, let's look at the text together. In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, But King, Nebuch or King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. For context, our roof here is about 30 feet tall. And so, this statue is 90, so three of our buildings on top of each other. That's how big this thing was, okay? Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of all the the instruments, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer before we dig into this word. So, Father, come before you. We thank you for this word, your word. And so pray that you would Give us open hearts, open minds to hear what it is that you're saying to us in this text. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to hit all of chapter 3 this morning. And there's three portions to this text. It kind of breaks down pretty, pretty greatly in three sections. And, uh, and so in this, I want you to see three things. Pride's command, humble defiance, and the way of salvation. Pride's command, humble defiance, and the way of salvation. And all of this, again, is heading up against Nebuchadnezzar, proving that God is superior over him. And so, this first section, these first 12, first, uh, we, I read through verse 7, but we're going to go through verse 12 and look at pride's command here. So, up first, what does God do? I mean, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He sets up a golden statue. Now, if you remember his dream. From chapter 2, I don't know if you remember back that far or not, but in his dream, the head of this statue represented him. And do you know what it was made out of? Gold. And so I don't know if he just missed the message last time or not. We're going to talk about that more here in just a minute. Uh, but it's a bold move by Nebuchadnezzar to hear from God that you're making, you're like, you're the golden head and I'm going to crush you and uh, my kingdom is going to be eternal. And then he turns around and makes a gold statue. Is it of him? I don't know. Is it of his God? I'm not sure. But either way, it's a bold move, okay? And uh, so he sets this up, and then he gives this command. He's controlling the worship of the people in his empire. And he says, listen, whenever you hear the music played, you are going to bow down, and you are going to worship this statue that I have made here. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the oven. And that's pretty much what, it, what happened, right? And so that's what he commanded, and uh, the question is this, it's like, it's kind of, can you identify with this, like people living in this area? Like, it's hard for you and me to, to be able to really think, like, like, like I, what would it be like to be there? Like, it's kind of a foreign concept for us. Why? Like, like, you and, on one hand, you and I exist in a, a culture, in a country that is governed by the separation of church and state, Right? And so, uh, which is a really good thing, you, you know, back, you know, 1600s, 1700s, people in the U.S. didn't get that advantage. But us today, we have a very strong idea of separation of church and state, whereas Joe Biden stepped up and said, hey, listen, I've made a statue. 
whenever you hear music, I want you to bow down and worship it. And every one of us would be like, I'm going to turn that TV off and I'm going to ignore you, right? Like, that's just what we can do. We have, like, this American mindset uh, to where the government's not going to tell us what we're going to do, right? Taxation is theft. Like, this, that's, that's, that's what we do. Like, we're patriots, okay? We, we stick our faces in the face of government, and we do what we want. That's our American mentality of government's not going to tell me what to do unless the IRS is calling, and then I'll do what they want, okay? And so, and so that's kind of, that's, that's just our situation, but on the other hand, we do have instances in which it is kind of ingrained into us, this cultural idea of there's a cultural norm, a political norm, a governmental norm that we all kind of will follow along with, and it's just built into our culture. For, and here's an example. It's not, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying it's an example of this, of a thing that's said for us to do, and we just do it, and we don't think much about it. If you go to public school or if you attended public school, during the morning announcements, what do you do? You stand up and you say the Pledge of Allegiance. Why do you do that? Like, have you ever thought about it? Like, what am I really meaning by standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance? Now, I'm not, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what I am saying is that's just a cultural, political thing that you do. Everyone does at school. And if you chose not to do it, you would feel awkward, Right? And so it's a thing that you just do, and everyone does it, and you don't really think much about it, and then you just go on with your day. Now, let's say you decided, God is just impressed on my heart. I should not say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. And then you go to school, and when it's time to say the Pledge of Allegiance, everyone stands up to say it, and you remain in your seat. And you're like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. I feel like God's calling me to not do this. Would you feel weird in that moment? Yeah. You would probably feel weird about that. Why? Because everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is standing up to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and everyone's looking at you thinking, it's not a big deal. What are you doing? Why are you being the weird guy? And you're like, I, I, God told me not to do it, Right? And so you would feel pressure to, to continue to stand up and just do it anyway, right? And again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to say the Pledge of Allegiance. But you would feel awkward if you had a conviction to not say it and you were in a room filled with people who were all just doing it to go along with it because they didn't want to be thrown in the furnace. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, that idea, like that mentality, that's what's happening to these guys. But add on to the ostracization that would happen if you said, among all the people, I'm not going to bow down and worship this thing. I'm not going to bow down and worship this statue that's been set up. Add on to the fact that, like, uh, that these people would look at you as a weird guy. But also, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. So not only will you be seen as the weird guy, or not only would you be looked like, not only would people kind of push you off, it's like, that's awkward. Why are you acting awkward right now? But you would also be faced with being thrown into a fiery furnace. So if you're in this situation, most likely you're just going to do it, right? You're just going to follow along because it's not that big of a deal. You'll just make it. It'll, you know, I'll cross my fingers as I do it. You know, you kind of will make these deals like that. Now, therefore, look at verse 7. 
Therefore, I mean, uh, 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 verse 8, it gets strange. So some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews because there were a handful of Jews who were like, this isn't right. We're not going to bow down and worship this statue. We're going to try to be faithful to God even in the middle of this crisis situation for us. And some Chaldeans, that means some other Babylonians, were trying to maliciously accuse them and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as the king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of these different instruments must fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship the statue will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. O king, you've given this decree. You're the great one. There are some Jews who are not bowing down to your will. There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men are ignoring you. They have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. Now, why are they maliciously accusing these guys? I don't Is it ethnic tension or is it they're, they're, uh, they're jealous that these guys got promoted into jobs that they wanted? We don't know. I don't know why they did this. But they saw this as an opportunity to go and attack the people of God who were not wanting to bow down to this statue. And so, again, I don't know why, why they did this, but look at this next. You see, the first thing you saw was the prideful command, but the second thing in this text is you see the humble defiance. Humble defiance. See, look at verse 13 with me. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and these guys had been elevated into a very high position because they were connected to Daniel. And so these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all this kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Now, I think that Nebuchadnezzar really liked these guys. I think that he probably did because he said, you know what, y'all come here, let's give you a hearing. I want to make sure, I want to hear from these guys if they really are disobeying me or not. Like, like if you don't like someone or if the king has no clue who you are and you're, the king's told, hey, he, they're disobeying you, they're like, throw them in the fire, get rid of them, Right? But he's like, no, no, I want to I I make sure that we're doing the right thing by these guys. Here. And so I guess, it's, I guess he likes them. Follow-up question with that. Where's Daniel? Y'all ever wonder about that? If you look back at chapter 2 with me, verse 49. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so what's likely happening is Daniel is not with these guys at this time. They've been separated. These guys are, have been put in positions to manage other parts of Babylon, and he's in a separate location from them uh, during this time. So that's probably what's happening, just in case you were curious about that, because I was curious about that. All right? Now, these guys come before Nebuchadnezzar, and they're on trial before him. He's given them a hearing. And, uh, and there's many ways in which Nebuchadnezzar really functions. He's prideful. He doesn't follow God. 
But he's not an unwise king. He actually does some things that are really smart. And, uh, uh, for example, bringing these guys into his leadership program to begin with. What do you do with people that you bring that are, that are not ethnically tied to you and your empire, and you bring them into your empire? How do you get them to be at peace with everyone else in your country? You put them in leadership programs and make them Babylonians like you. You put everyone's teenagers in your own leadership program, the parents are not going to do anything to buck the king, right? And so that's what's happening here. He's, he's not an unwise guy. And so he brings these leaders in, and he's like, listen, guys. Why are you defying, are you defying me? Like, I'm going to give you a shot just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Listen, just worship this thing when I say to worship it, and we're all going to be okay, okay? But look at the end of verse 15, because it starts to reveal something about Nebuchadnezzar. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Isn't that an amazing statement? You see, he's, he's given them a chance to worship, but there's still something in Nebuchadnezzar where he truly believes that he is the all-powerful one. There is nothing that can go against his will, and if you choose to defy him, then you're going to face his wrath. And for you and me, we think of that, and we're like, that, what a ridiculous statement, right? We might hear that, and we're like, that's, that's really crazy. And, but in his mind... What we see is that the message from chapter 2 never took root in his heart. He heard the message from Daniel that God's kingdom is eternal. He saw that God could work through Daniel and interpret his dreams, and he thought that was really cool. And so he elevated Daniel and his friends to a really high position. But the actual message of what God said to him, he missed. And so what he's doing here is he's still building his own kingdom. He's still building his own empire. He doesn't have a concern about Israel's God at all. And so he's existing with this belief that he is all-powerful. And his pride is such that not even the gods could challenge him. And crazy statement. It sounds ridiculous. But again, consider who this guy was. He ruled the greatest empire in the world. Any king that dared defy him, he sent his army in to lay siege on their, on their city, and then he would raise the whole thing and bring their people back as slaves to his empire. Like, that was his political might. But not only, like, political might and opposing, uh, destroying everyone who opposes him, but also he would do great things within his own empire, public works. He oversaw major public works projects to bring roads, to bring great walls, to bring all these awesome things into his city of Babylon, not to mention one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, was at his house, literally was at his house. It was his backyard. It was terraces hanging out, overlooking the city with exotic trees everywhere from all over the world. And it was like gloriously beautiful, literally was his backyard. And so he steps out into that on his golden, on his terraces in this beautiful garden overlooking his city. And he's looking out there and this dude is incredibly powerful. And with that as his setting, his personal setting, that's when he totally bought into the idea that he was the all-powerful one. And so when these guys dared to potentially defy him, he's like, let me remind you who I am. There is no God who can save you from me. Amazing statement. 
But here's the thing. Nebu, I, call, I kept shorthanding him, Nebu. Nebuchadnezzar, in that mindset, lived his life remaining apart from knowing God. Lived his life remaining apart from God's heart, from God's grace. And what happened is that affected those who were under his influence. By example, he was trying to direct their worship. And there's a real danger for Christians and for non-Christians alike to hear a message from God, but not actually hear it. I'm talking about Daniel chapter 2 there. You see, because he was still building his own kingdom. He heard from God that your kingdom's not going to last. My kingdom is the one to build, and he still just completely missed it. But in this, God isn't threatened. God is not threatened. Look at his servants. Look what they do here uh, in verses 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These amazing guys. So if you're going to have kids, these are good names to name, okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question about who, which God can save us. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the fiery furnace, the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. I don't know how many Jews had the boldness to have that kind of a mindset, but they did. Pretty amazing. And so what happens when your prideful plans come up against unwilling subjects? Often you kind of move into reckless territory. What does he do? He throws his fire for you guys. Look what happens in verse, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than were customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in the army to tie them up and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, <laughs> it's funny, these men in their trousers and robes and head coverings and, all, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Then the king's command was so urgent that the furnace was extremely hot and the raging flames killed the men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men were fell, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Treacherous end. Uh, to this situation here. But here's the thing, is what happens when your prideful plan comes up against unwilling subjects? You get reckless. You get reckless in your reaction, and the operational mode of your heart is revealed. And for Nebuchadnezzar, he's like, you guys are not bowing down to me, and so I'm going to get rid of you. And before we look at this as kind of arm's length, like so, that's something that he can do, but that's not really, don't really pertain to me because I'm not a king. Like, no, no, no. He, he just, it's not abstract. He just had more power and ability to live unrestrained. But we're not different. We have the same reality. Like, how do you react when you have a plan in your head and it gets disrupted or someone doesn't follow what you want? I had this happen uh, this past week. I, I, get, I have Fridays off. And uh, I try really, I, I, I plan them out, man. I try to pack so many things on my Fridays 
to accomplish just around the house. Like, if I've, got, I've got to build a dresser. I've got to work on the car. I've got to go run. I've got to do, I've got to do these errands. I've got, I, I, I pack them out every single time of all these plans for what I want to get done on the Friday. You want to know how many Fridays that I've got to actually do what I want this entire semester, like, like since August? Like four total. It's been very frustrating for me. <laughs> It's, we've been tormented with sickness. You know, every, it's, it's bizarre. Literally every single, I've been trying to get lunch with Jared Waltrip for over a month on Fridays. I have, to put, I have to cancel on him every single week. Because what happens is Thursday night, someone comes to our room and says they're sick. Guess who's staying home with them? Me. This guy. Guess who's not going to be able to accomplish things at the house? This guy right here. Happened this week, Thursday. Two, or I guess Friday morning, 2 a.m., one of my boys comes to my room and says, hey, I threw up in my bed. You know what I'm thinking at that point? You know what I'm not, th- actually, you know what I'm not thinking? Come here, son. Let me comfort you. Let me help you. I'm going to clean that throw up up with all the love that God has given us. Let me hug you. You know, that, you know what I did? That's what I did not do. You know what I did do? I, here's the thing. It's not his fault. Like, he didn't, he didn't choose to do that. But you know what, I, what was going on in my mind at that point? Rage. I am so furious because it's another Friday that I am not going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. I'm just, I'm, and I was like, I was just sitting there, just, Darrow was cleaning it up. I'm sitting there fuming. And like, I'm just, I'm so mad because it's just, my plan's taken away from me again. And, and it's, again, it's not his fault. I know it's not his fault, but it's just, it's, I'm so mad about it because it's, ha- it's so often that it happens. And I text Jared again at 6 a.m. I can't, I can't make it. And, uh, and so I've had this happen. You've had it happen to you too. What do you do when your prideful plan gets, gets disrupted? You throw, you go into reckless territory. Why? Because what are we about? Building our kingdoms and building what we want to do. That's, what we, that's who we are, Right? And this leads us into the third part right here. We've got to do it quick. It's the way of salvation. The way of salvation. Look at verse 24. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar jumped in alarm, and he said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into that fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, we did, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, your servants of the mo- you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. No hair was, was singed. The robes were unaffected. There was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded them 
in the province of Babylon. So here's the third thing is the way of salvation. See, up first in this is uh, you see this miraculous de- deliverance, right? And the question is, who is in the fire with them, you know? And what Nebuchadnezzar said is someone like an angel. He saw a supernatural being in there. And so he's kind of not really specific as to who was in the fire with him. He's just saying the son of the gods was a way to talk about angels or supernatural beings. And, uh, and so was it Jesus or was it an angel? We don't know. We, we don't know. But as Christians, what we can know is that what this proves is that God is with his people even in the fiery trials. God is with his people. And this very well could have been Jesus before he came at Christmas. Kind of a cool idea. He was there to walk with his people even before he came as a child. Pretty cool. But ultimately, what this shows, Nebuchadnezzar, is that there is actually a God who can deliver from his hand. There is actually a God who can do that. The power is displayed, and so Israel can look at this and see... Yes, there is reason to trust God in this moment because he can deliver. He is above Nebuchadnezzar. But for Nebuchadnezzar, he was able to see that there is a God who's bigger than him. And this pushback is exactly the the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed. It's what he needed to be able to experience God for the first time. You see, I was, at the beginning, I said there were two, two parts to this. One is, is help for the people of God to trust Him. The second thing is pursuing the heart of a sinner. And God kills both two birds with one stone in this situation. You see, in, in working to help His people, the plan of God allows Him to seek the salvation of others as well. It's pretty, a pretty cool situation. You see, And what Nebuchadnezzar experiences here is what a true experience with God looks like. You see, when you see who you are in light of who He is, then what it does is it humbles you. It humbles you. You see, observing a wider view here of the text, and we're going to get through it quickly, there is this theme, a Bible-dominating truth that is governing this passage. And, and it's something that the people of God are in the middle of experiencing themselves while they're in exile. And so it's this. God brings salvation through judgment. It's the way of salvation. God brings salvation through judgment. That's how He is glorified. A guy named James Hamilton, who's a professor, is the one who, who coined this, this term. And it's, what he means by that is this. God's salvation comes always through an act of judgment against sin. For example, in the Exodus, what happens? God is redeeming His people from Egypt as an act of judgment against Pharaoh. Rahab, Rahab and Jericho, she sees salvation in the middle of an act of judgment against Jericho. So here, in the, in the, uh, with the exile of Babylon, what do these people see? They're seeing judgment by being forced into exile in Babylon And so, in order that they might see salvation in returning back to their God in their hearts, right? And so, that's the way that God works, is He brings salvation through acts of judgment. And so, in this situation here, we see the salvation and the deliverance of Shadrach and his buddies means judgment against Nebuchadnezzar. 
See, Nebuchadnezzar is judged his claims of ultimate authority, his claims of like his prideful coercion of all of his people's worship is judged through God saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the way that God works. Sin is always judged when God comes to save. And you see, in this, this is where you witness the, the mercy of God, the grace and mercy of God. You see, in the vast majority of these cases, those who receive the judgment from God do it in order that they might find salvation from God. Very rarely is it the final con- condemning moment. But most of the times in Scripture, it is meant to humble people to recognize that they need salvation from God. And it's, it depends on if you have faith and allows you to see it or not. So your faith determines what you see in the moment. Whether you believe that God is working through this thing or in this thing is, determines whether you're going to see if God is shaping you to lead you to salvation or if He's leading you to con- condemnation. It's what do you believe about this thing? And so the question here is this. Will Nebuchadnezzar see this as the worst day of his life? Or will he look back on it as the greatest day of his life when he finally experienced a God who was bigger than him? It's up to Nebuchadnezzar. Does he have faith to see mercy in this response? Does he have faith to see the mercy of having his sin brought to light? Does he have faith to see it? And this is, in reality, the actualization of God's love for us, God's love for sinners, and that He wants all people to be saved. He wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth, and your faith determines if you'll see it, if you'll find it. See, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw a large stone that was going to come and crush him, crush his kingdom. And the question is this, does he see that stone of offense as something to build his life upon? You see, what this points, to, uh, points us to is the one who brings sin into the light and deals with it, Jesus, with the cross. You see, what He does is he, 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 at the cross, He deals with our sin. He says, I'm bringing all this to the forefront. I'm bringing all this into the light in order that it might be judged and dealt with so that way you could recognize your sin for what it is and then be able to find salvation through that. To be able to see that God has judged sin, and you need to rid your life of it, but then through that, find the way of salvation, find the way of forgiveness in God. Do you see the stone of offense that reveals your sin as the stone, the cornerstone to build your life upon? Do you have the faith to see it? That's the question for Nebuchadnezzar, and that's the question for you. And so let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in which they lived in these circumstances that, that you led them into, and they chose to be faithful to you in it as a great example for us to inspire us to be able to follow in their footsteps and ultimately to show us the way of salvation and how you bring salvation to us and you always do it through an act of judgment. And so I pray that we'd be able to see your mercy, to be able to see your grace in that, that we'd be able to walk by faith and see how it is that 
that you are, are guiding us. And ultimately, we, we thank you for Jesus and that he is the stone of offense who became the cornerstone for us, who took the judgment for us, God. And so we, we give you praise for loving us, us in this manner, but, not, but doing it to where you're not leaving us where we're at, but you call us to, to become like you. And so pray that you would fulfill that in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so this morning, if you want to pray with someone about building your life on the stone of Jesus, uh, I'm going to be in the, the front right up here. And so I don't know what God is calling you. Maybe God has spoken to you and is calling you to uh, bring out some sin in your life, to be able to You've been feeling conviction, feeling judgment over it, and God is saying, hey, I want you to bring that into the light to be able to move forward. Maybe that's what he's calling you to do is to take a step to bring that into the light today. I don't know. But let's be those who walk by faith and see God's gracious hand and how he deals with us. And so while the band plays, you respond.